Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features Michael Duggar, former Labour MP, former Shadow Minister, former Number 10 staffer. He served the Labour Party at almost every level that it is possible to serve at, including inside Number 10 in the run-up to the 2010 election. He's now Chief Exec of the Betting and Gaming Council. He also ran UK Music, so he's got amazing perspectives on a whole load of things. Um, And I caught up with him um, on the final day of the Labour Party conference. There's a bit of conference chat, but also his perspective on working in Downing Street in the run-up to a stressful general election. A brilliant chat about gambling. I mean, so much stuff. Um, this is the last episode that I'll record um, before I go into hospital uh, for my operation. But I have, for the coming weeks, gone back through the back catalogue of this show. Ten years' worth and picked out some of my favourite interviews. Often people will get in touch and say, why haven't you had, say, Gordon Brown on the show, or or Keir Starmer, or whoever, Um, and I often have. I I don't blame people for not trawling through 10 years' worth of a podcast feed, but I've picked out some of my favourites from um, through the ages. (laughs) I mean, I say that, in the last 10 years, it does feel like we've been through a a number of political ages. Um, So, um, yes, some of my favourites. So that will start next week. Um, So this is the last of the ones that I've been able to record before. Then the live shows will eventually return at the Duchess Theatre. I'll keep you updated on that on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford. Thank you for everyone who's emailed uh, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com um, just with all your lovely wishes and, and positive thoughts and it genuinely all that stuff really helps. It, it really does and um, you know my, my I come from a God-fearing background, even though I'm an atheist, but whenever anyone tells you that they're praying for you or they're, they're wishing you well, it genuinely has an effect and I just think I feel so supported and I feel so privileged to feel so supported because I think there are so many people out there that, that don't have that. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have um, the wife that I have and the friends and family that I have who've all been phenomenal, as you'd imagine. But also just the wider community of politics and football and, and just people who get in touch with you. And, and every single message genuinely gives... Um, just helps it does especially when you're about to go through something that obviously in the long run is hugely beneficial but in the short term obviously you have to endure something as you often have to in life um but thank you thank you for everyone who's messaged tweeted whatever everyone who's got in touch through whatever media you prefer it really it really has been um i didn't expect to have so many wonderful messages so i'm very very grateful anyway this is a terrible way to introduce a phenomenal guest um i've known michael duggar for many years he's one of those i mean there are so many people every time i see them i need to get you on the podcast and then obviously just because i do one a week that restricts it um maybe i should when i come back i should just maybe just make it a daily podcast and just get everyone on that i really want to have on because obviously inevitably in life you're just like you just end up just you can't get everyone on and it's just infuriating because there are so many fascinating people that I meet and that I haven't met yet and that would be brilliant guests but um before the break I wanted to have someone on that I knew would be excellent uh, and he is uh, and someone that you know in a way just a personal treat to myself someone who's always good company but someone that I know you will love as well um so uh, this is someone with with uh, as I said at the start so many different experiences and roles to draw on um, from an activist, MP, working in number 10, shadow cabinet, and also just his role in politics and, and, and the danger of, in a way, becoming typecast in politics um, was, was, was really interesting as well. So I will now stop waffling. This is Michael Duggar. Michael, you're in Liverpool when we record this on the last day of the Labour conference. Obviously, you've been involved in the party for a long time. You've seen its highs and lows. You've experienced that at every level, really, it's possible to serve the Labour Party at. How has this week felt 
compared to, I guess, any point since Labour were last in government? So I was trying to work out how many um, Labour Party conferences I've been to. I think I've been to 26 out of the last 28 years, which should get some kind of long service medal or... <laughs> Or, or, or three or four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We referred somewhere on the NHS. Um, it feels it'd be a bit of a cliche to say, "Oh, it feels like just before night It doesn't really, but I noticed last year was very struck by the discipline of the conference. How uh, that I've not seen that for years and years. I mean, most of the time we're in government, and there's no discipline at the low party conference. Um, so that was there last year. This year, there was much more. It it genuinely does feel like Labour is on the kind of brink of power, and I think it's certainly the attitude, not just of say the discipline of the delegates, but all the outsiders that are here. You know, the exhibition hall is like a spaceship. You know, you know all the big companies are here. You know, a few years ago under Jeremy, you know, you'd be sort of rattling around the you know the Cuban solidarity stand and. Uh, and that was about, about as good as it got, you know. I mean, there was just not not a lot doing, you know, a few newspaper sellers and I mean, a pretty, pretty threadbare bunch. Um, but now it feels very much like the outside world is taking Labour seriously again. Um, and as a serious opposition and as a serious party in government in waiting. You're Labour to your core now, but obviously, but you're Labour to your core, but now you're obviously involved outside of politics. Obviously, a lot of the work you do is still politics facing, but the perspective you've got now from years out of it and your experience in the private sector, do you get the sense that uh, the business community, the private sector is, is looking at Labour like it's the next government? Oh, definitely. Yeah, and have been for um, for at least a year, I think. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is a big, um, a big change. Um, they kind of just, slightly baffled by um by the current government really i mean it, we'll we'll look back on this and all the umpteen you know prime ministers and chancellors and you know grant shout so i know pretty well i think he's, he's on his five, fifth cabinet job in a year or something i mean it i do think sometimes government thinks this that's a bit ridiculous and probably with some just cause um but yeah they're definitely looking at labor again uh they're interested in what Labour will do, their policies, their people, um, in a way that I've not seen that for, for many years. And it certainly wasn't like this before, say, the 2015 election either. Um, I went to Conservative Party conference last week, and I was trying to think if it reminded me of, you know, sort of Labour's conference in 09 or something, and did a little bit, to be honest. And, and obviously you worked... In number 10, at a time when things were very difficult for the Labour Party, obviously they would get far worse in opposition, but you were you were effectively at the centre of power when Labour was you know, facing an election that it was going to lose. Um, firstly, what was that like working in number 10 for Gordon Brown? I've never, I've never actually met Gordon properly until the first day I started, so I was You're in kidding. for a nice I just surprise. thought you'd known him for years. <laughs> No, 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 not at all. Um, I'd met him once in the 2001 general election campaign just for a photo because I was a candidate in some no-hoper seat. So they selected a no-hoper. And, um, yeah, it's the first day I came in at half past seven and there he was, first in the office. And, um, yeah, and that was that was the first time I'd met him. So that was, yeah, that was a nice surprise. Um, 
But look, he took the. He was a difficult guy to work for. You know, lots of stories about him, and most stories aren't true. But you know, the myths and legends grow. But he took the job seriously, and he wanted to do things, and he was deeply committed to public service, and still is, and so was a very, very tough. Uh, tough boss because he felt the challenges that the country faced were really tough and the experiences that people were having were incredibly tough and and he expected the people around him people who worked for him uh, to put in a shift and so I mean it, it was I looked back recently my wife said oh, it would be a bit like you know childbirth you'd, you'd only remember like the, the good bit you know and so I do remember the sort of getting on and off aeroplanes and flying around the world and meeting the Pope and all that sort of stuff but what I try and forget is the sort of 95-hour weeks of unrelenting, grinding misery. And all I did basically was, you know, I, I used to wake up, work, go to sleep, and occasionally, it reminded me slightly of that sort of in the thick of it, you know, occasionally just for a treat, I'd, you know, visit the bathroom for, to go to the toilet or something, and that was about as good as it got. Um Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I don't think I'd ever put, put those hours in again. And well, it's an amazing privilege. Um, it's one of those things where would I, would I do it again? Probably knowing what I know now, I'm not sure I would. Um, but it was, it was an amazing privilege. And basically my wife was a single parent for, for two and a half years. <laughs> so there's all of that as well. But yeah, and I, I learned a lot from him. And he was very tough, Gordon. Um, but I had huge respect for him. And I knew at the time I was working for you know, one of the great figures in British political history and in Labour history and someone who'd already, as Chancellor for 10 years, achieved so much. Um, you know, I th- remember that time he was kind of quoted as that he saved the world. Um, I sort of think, you know, when you look at his, his handling of the global financial uh, crisis, I kind of think he did to some extent. And we always said afterwards that history would be kinder. I'm not sure we meant it <laughs> when we said it, but the truth is... History has rightly been very kind to him. I'm not least for because of the different occupants that have come in since. Um, the bar for success is slightly lowered, but um, yeah, I think history uh, is and will be will be kind to him. And when you see what's what the current government are going through, do you have a level of sympathy for people working at Number Ten now? When a government starts to fray at the edges, when it's just one thing after another, I guess people think of the '92 to '97 Tory uh, regime as well. Do you have a sense of, if not political, uh, camaraderie with the current staff at Number 10? Can, can you empathise with their plight? Sorry, it's a national union of, you know, Downing Street <laughs> <laughs> staffers or something. Um, oh. what a dysfunctional union that would be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, have, I do have a bit of sympathy. You mentioned that I've been out of kind of frontline politics for seven, eight years now. And I've worked a lot with with different people in, in this government. And just give you a slightly different perspective. You know, you you know, I think you have a sort of wider, maybe a more normal view. You know, it's less sort of cocooned in your own party. And I've got genuine great friendships with, you know, a number of people, you know, who happen to be conservatives and we chat about politics. We more often talk about football and other things um i have a little bit of sympathy to the extent that 
I was asked this when I was in Downing Street a couple of weeks ago by one of the one of the guys in there, and he said, "Oh, was it like this before 2010?" <laughs> and I didn't really want to say, "Yeah," <laughs> and you know, you know how that ends. But um, <laughs> just I said, "Oh, there's a bit of foreboding that kind of whatever they do, nothing seems to work." You know, and they're desperate. Well, I think their strategy, if you go back a year ago, their strategy really when they came up with their kind of five pledges was just to, that was just to get them through interviews until their party conference. And their strategy was really that everyone would see that Rishi, you know, is very different to Liz Truss and very different to Boris Johnson, and he clearly is, um, and that the economy would bounce back and people would see the benefit, feel the benefit and, and be suitably grateful for that and that the kind of political numbers would you know rejuvenate in line with economic numbers and what's happened really in the last nine months is the economy isn't coming isn't riding to the rescue I'm afraid um you know people grappling with their mortgage bills and everything else and I think um also I don't think that people think Rishi is the change and now, either they squandered that opportunity at the beginning, it's easy to say now, or, and this is kind of you know unfair on Rishi, but the government has been in for 13 years, have been in a long time, and you know, there's a you know cumulative grievance, to put it politely. You just when people have when you've been in office for a long time, you know, the sort of all elections are change versus risk. And I just think this election. Rishi tried very hard last week in Manchester to be the change. Very hard to be the change when you've kind of been around a long time. I'm not sure people kind of are going to are going to buy that. And their hope is really that all the don't knows will suddenly enthusiastically flock to the Conservative cause at the general election, and um, we'll see. And I mean, you're you're you are you are steeped. In the history and the traditions and the practices of a particular era of the Labour Party, when you look at the swing that Keir Starmer needs at the next election, even with all this stuff, is it just too big a mountain for any politician to climb? Or do you think that actually Labour can win seats that even Blair wouldn't have won in 97? I think it's a huge mountain to climb. Um, This is why I'm sort of hesitant, in fact, kind of against people saying, oh, does it feel like it's before 1997? No, we're not. I personally don't. I don't think we're going to get a kind of 1997 style result. I mean, things are very different now. The fragmentation of the electorate is is completely different. You know, the the era of kind of universal swings and the swingometer, which seats then kind of fall into line. I think you'll get very different results in different parts of the country. You know, we learned that in 2019, looking at the Red Wall, you know, many of those seats bordered the constituency I represented, you know, white working class areas, the constituency that I grew up in, which is rock solid Labour, Don Valley, you know, now has a Conservative MP. Um, and that alienation, which is what it is, of the, particularly of kind of white working class voters, has been coming for a long time. I think that changes things. I think Scotland has changed things. Now, it may be changing back again, looking at the the recent by-election. Um, and actually, the, the more Labour can do in Scotland, it reduces the burden in England and Wales in terms of the swing that they do need there. Jim Murphy was very good on this uh, after the by-election. So I think um, I think the party are, are cautiously optimistic that they can get 
a sufficient result to get them over the line and get them uh, a majority. But you mentioned the sort of parallel before 2010. It's not inconceivable um, by any stretch of the imagination that the Tories could do to Labour what Labour did to the Tories before 2010 and, and deny their opponents a majority. I think that is you know, a uh, a distinct possibility. The Lib Dems, perhaps in hope rather than expectation, but certainly friends of mine that were at the Lib Dem conference, they think that's where they'll get to. So we'll see. I always thought this of you, often from afar, and obviously I know you better now, and I mean this as a genuine compliment. I think you are a kind of Stuart Pearce sort of politician. I think you are... Born very when... short shorts. Whacking great thighs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love a punk. Oh, I get that a lot, yeah. What I mean is, I think you're suited to when it's difficult. I think, that, and I, I wonder if that's kind of what partly draws you in. Obviously, you, you joined the Labour Party because you think that's the way to improve the world and all the rest of it and your background. But in a way, I thought, thinking about the time that you were around number 10, I could sort of see why you were there. I thought you were someone who, you know, some people um, rise in that sort of environment. It, it can cow other people. I know it's very difficult, but I always thought there was something in your character that was far better suited to difficult times. That, that, that That's when someone like Michael Duggar was kind of at his best. There's a bit of that. I don't mean, it's for others to judge, really. I don't know whether, you know, I was good in a scrap. The, the, or, or whether I kind of good at starting fights. Or I don't know. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you're a thug, I, is what I, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. I knew when people start saying, I'm, I mean, this is a compliment. It's normally followed immediately by something that sounds not a lot like a compliment. <laughs> I know what you mean. I'm, I suppose I am quite combative. So there, um, there's a reason why I've, I've I worked in lots of different parts of government, but never in the diplomatic service. And I think that's probably for a reason. I don't know. I kind of came from you know, working class back when I was growing up, you know, there were police on the streets. It was the miners' strike, you know. I mean, it was it was an awful time. Um, and and come from that kind of background, I don't know, maybe it makes you a bit streetwise or, you know, makes you a bit tough or whatever. But I always felt it was that politics was a serious business. And, uh, and also, I don't do things by halves. That's the other thing. You know, if I'm going to... I'm not sure Stuart Pearce is the right analogy, but he was pretty tough in the tackle. If he went in, he definitely went in. Um, and uh, I don't know. I quite like being compared to Stuart Pearce, actually. Another well, left footer. It, it wasn't a coincidence, obviously, but it, 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 he's a, a Forest legend. People know that I sport Forest. But how do you, from Yorkshire, end up being a Forest fan? Because I went to Nottingham Uni, actually. So I moved. I was from South Yorkshire. There was a few Forest fans, actually, there. At the time, the minor stride didn't help with all of that. I was going to say, <laughs> but um, I know it's not when you go to Forest Sheffield United, you see all these kids who, you know, weren't even born at the time. You know, making thinly veiled references to the minor strike. Yeah. It is like let's relive the minor strike, or as I always say, let's not. Um, I mean, I as, as someone with miles... eczema, I find those uh, insults doubly, doubly offensive. Yeah, I'm a, I seem to remember my um, seeing my young nephew years and years ago. I think Forest were on the verge of relegation again, yeah. and uh, the Sheffield United fans, including my seven-year-old nephew at the time, jumping up and down and singing "The Scabs Are Going Down," which I thought was interesting, where we, given where we come from. But um, yeah, it's a long time ago. The I moved forty miles south, uh, went to Nottingham, moved in with a bunch of Forest fans. I'd not been into football really as a teenager. I had as a kid. 
because um, I got very into music. I was playing in bands and doing all that sort of stuff. Um, and then went and a friend took me to a reserve game. I think it was free for students on a Wednesday. And in those days, you'd see, you know, like ex-England internationals coming back from injury. Neil Webb, um, I remember playing in one reserve game and all the all the junior Reds at Forest singing Mr Blobby songs. Um, I think uh, I think he'd put on a pound or two. And uh, I sort of went and then... It was the promotion season, 93, 94. So Frank Clark, who did a great job, bought some fantastic players, you know, people like Stan Collimore from Southend and Colin Cooper from Millwall. And, you know, I can't remember a single thing. Genuinely, I can't remember a single thing I learned at university. And I can name the entire Forest squad, I think, from <laughs> 1995. I mean, what a bloody waste of money, you know? No, no. Time well spent. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's enhanced your life in the long run. Uh, even if so you, you know you're getting old, Matt. When uh, the, I, I save all my old forest shirts, and uh, I went to the ground a couple of years ago, and you look in the vintage section. You know you're getting old when shirts that you bought the first time around are now in the vintage yeah. section. So I thought, being a tight-fisted Yorkshireman, I thought oh, that that shows what a sound investment I made back in 1994. So I'm up in the loft, got the shirt out, dusted it down, put it on the hanger, put it in the wardrobe. My wife said. Uh, why have you put that old uh, old forest shirt in the I said, right, it's back. It's in a band back in fashion. And she said, you aren't going to wear it, are you? I said, what? Just that 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 sort of red plastic thing that looks like, you know, if someone lit a cigarette 100 yards away from you, it might actually explode <clears throat> with with the uh, name of a Canadian lager manufacturer <laughs> ac- ac- across your much larger stomach than was the case in 1994. So anyway, I thought about it. I eventually went back in the loft, but... Yeah, you, you you feel your age. That's your pension, mate. They're worth a fortune, those uh, <laughs> those originals. They're the antiques of the future, those football shirts. I also remember when um, when you become an MP, and my memory of you is at Primus's questions when Ed Miliband was leader of the opposition, you would sit on that staircase... <laughs> So that the, I presume so that the speaker it's glamorous, could... isn't it? Politics. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've done really well. I'm glad I worked hard all those years. I basically, had a job where I used to sit on the floor. Yeah, but it was wasn't that like heckler's corner? W- weren't you sitting there so that the speaker couldn't yeah. hear you and you could try and like hurl abuse at David Cameron? Yeah, pretty much. That was it. And I could I was sort of hidden away, and uh, so the speaker wouldn't see me. And I didn't hurl abuse. I mean, I just I occasionally questioned David Cameron's work ethic. I think <laughs> I remember. <laughs> Remember once, you know, suddenly you say things and you don't realize the volume has dropped. And he was asked a question, and he was sort of famous for being, I don't know, fairly or unfairly, you know, a bit lazy and not not a, not a details person. And he was asked some question. He's thumbing through his brain. So there he goes, looking at his brief, never knows the answer. I said, "There's not an ounce of work in this lad." And he looked at me and glared at me. I remember. <laughs> He seems to have a real problem with Ed Balls, I remember. Those two seem to wind each other up a lot. Well, he's quite, I thought he was quite thin-skinned, was Cameron, actually. He's one of these guys. I know maybe I can sound like a class warrior now, but, he, you know, looking at his back, he, his education and everything, he always struck me as someone who had spent a large part of his time on the sort of escalator of life, sort of gliding effortlessly upwards. And when the escalator stops and he's suddenly got to climb a few stairs, he was he was he always looked slightly cheesed off about it. But... Did you, when you're in that moment, obviously you're playing your part for the cause. It's a part you play well. Do you think 
well, I'm happy in this role. Kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that because I'm good at it, and it's, a, it's a vital function of democracy and, and the nature of the House of Commons. So, do you think I don't want to get typecast as this sort of guy? You know, I, I might want to be um, a Secretary of State one day. I, I want to be a serious government minister. Should we win an election? I probably did get typecast actually. To go back to your earlier question, really, it's kind of you know good in a scrap and. Um... Occasion that was a bit frustrating. I thought I thought I had a bit more to my game than just a you know occasional late tackle, um, and eventually I did become shadow transport secretary, shadow DCMS secretary. All my time in Parliament, people used to say maybe because I've been in government for nine years, I've been in Downing Street, and I've flown all around the world with the Prime Minister. I remember one MP, Toby Perkins, once saying to me that he thought I was a bit blasé about the place. Um, and I hope I wasn't, and I, that I, had, I, I was suitably respectful of you know, walking in, taking my seat in the House of Commons. But for me, it was only a means to an end to everything I did from 2010 onwards, all the years in Parliament, was all about getting into government. I was, just, I was very, very clear. The only point of politics, in my view, is to get into government. Now, there are others who forge different roles, who become great backbench, camp, backbench campaigners and do fantastic work, you know, and are great kind of scrutinizers of government uh, policy and legislation. But for me, it was really, really simple. It's all about getting into government. If you want to, you should only be in politics if you want to make a difference and to change things. You can only do that in the main by being in government. So every single day, that's all I tried to do uh, and was a dismal failure um, at it, <laughs> looking at looking at results. But I don't know, if, if, Labour's, the fact that Labour's revival coincides pretty much with my exit from, from politics, is, there's probably a, probably a lesson there. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But you've thrived since, haven't you? Since since the twenty ten election, you've gone on to to to, to great things, including um, being chief exec of UK Music, which you know music's such a big part of your life. To end up with such an influential role in an industry that that you love must have been a very special moment. I mean, how do you go from being uh, you know a shadow minister to then a few years later um, becoming chief exec of of a body like that? It was a great job actually, and one. You know, I was very proud of and uh, I had a lot of interviews, I seem to remember. I've not kind of written a CV or done an interview. I think maybe ever, actually. Um, so that was, that was you know, a new experience. So I went through a competitive process. I, I'd been someone who in Parliament had a reputation of being very, 
you know, pro the music industry. I'd been part of the, you know, the APPG, the All Party Group on Music. Um, I'd supported UK Music in their campaigning and and had tried to help them in Parliament. Um, and I think in the end, they wanted someone who had experience not just of Parliament or politics, but government, who could really kind of help them. Uh, extend their profile and their reach, um, and that's hopefully what I, I tried to do for them. And I think I, I think I did. Um, and we made changes as well. Um, but it's fantastic. I got to meet, you know, people who you know, I have people on my board who are. Well, that's a Grammy, double Grammy winning, you know, record producer. You know, I'm trying to think. There's, there's, there's Crispin Hunt, the, you know, the frontman of the Long Pigs, who, you know, one of the best albums of the 1990s. Um, who's now a record producer and a songwriter, and you know, you go to the Ivan Avellos and meet your heroes. You know, I mean, Sandy Shaw used to be on my board. I'm in Liverpool at the moment, as you say, and the UK Music had their bash at the. Um, British Music Experience, which is a really good museum that opened recently. It's basically the history of, of rock and roll, history of, of pop music. And it's directly opposite the Cunard building. And I remember doing interviews, we launched a report there and saying, look, this is where it all began. There was no Radio 1 in those days, you know. So the, the only way you could listen to a rock and roll record was what they call the Cunard Yanks, who were Liverpoolian merchant seamen who would be going across the Atlantic and would buy these sort of R&B, these black records from the sort of early mid-50s. And so they were getting them here in this part of the world long before. And, and I just remember thinking about that story. But I also remember when we launched the report, I did it on, the mon- on, a, on a morning in Liverpool and I had to be back in London for a, for a lunch. And, and I'm walking around the, the museum and I go past, you know, skiffle and rock and roll. We get to the 60s and all the Beatles stuff. And then there's this, this fabulous little dress, you know, kind of mini uh, dress on the thing. And I looked at a great sparkly little thing. And I sort of looked at it and um, it was a dress worn by Sandy Shaw. And so I took a picture of it and, uh, and I texted it her and I said, see you in three hours. <laughs> I was having lunch with her that day, and I just thought that this job is weird, man. You know? <laughs> what a great gig! Yeah, you know, you talk about class, and it's something that we're both very passionate about. Music in this country feels like it's become way more middle class because um, bands and songwriters can't make the same money off album sales that they used to. So it all falls yeah. on live sales. They're, they're not making that money early in their career that means they can make more albums that they can take losses on smaller tours. I mean, Sam Fender seems to be a kind of outrider really these days yeah it, 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 with streaming and things like that is can you put the genie back in the bottle can you make um music basically not free again i mean i think there is there's quite a lot of complacency i think sometimes in parts of the music industry certainly in uh in parts of government about the success of British music. Um, a lot of it is based essentially on heritage acts. You know, we're in Liverpool, you know, occasionally they mention the Beatles <laughs> up here. Um, you know, there is and and the people should be proud and uh, are rightly proud of our unbelievable music heritage. And today we still punch way above our, our weight. But you're right about class. When you look at it, they are getting posher. 
And that's the truth is because it's, it's, it's partly, I think, you know, the economics of music so that, you know, I'm a big supporter of the Broken Record campaign that Tom Gray uh, at the Ivers Academy uh, has run so amazingly. You know, I'm on the board of the Ivers Academy uh, Trust. Um, and so, so I think there's a few things. The first is creators need to get paid for their work and the, and the government is going to have to find a settlement, really, that does balance the interests of, of creators uh, and, and investors. Um, but the, the current system is appalling. Um, I think the second thing is about uh, venues. You know, we've lost a lot of grassroots music venues. That is an essential part of the infrastructure in terms of generating, you know, next generation talent. The third thing is music and education. So you've got to have a system whereby kids of all backgrounds can have access to instruments and tuition and rehearsal spaces. And at the moment, really, it's, it's all about the bank of mum and dad. So you can get into the music industry. So if your parents say, oh, we think you're really talented. Here's a new, you know, it's another guitar. Um, go down to London and seek your fortune in the in music. Don't, we'll pay you rent. Um, we'll pay, you know, we'll pay you an allowance. Um, if you haven't got the kind of bank of mum and dad, I don't know how you do it now. Uh, music and education is, is an area where I think if Labour win the election, I think they'll want to make really serious progress on because it has been totally run down. Um, and I just think uh, I found this all the time. It's one, uh, one of the things when I was doing the UK music job that I found very frustrating because I just felt that too many people in government were completely complacent about this um, and were happy to kind of go to UK music parties and, you know, lift a glass and toast the good old days and, and weren't really aware that, that music is just not within reach for so many kids and so many communities. And, you know, Kevin Brennan, who is a great mutual friend of ours, Labour MP and the DCMS Select Committee, who's been a great campaigner on all of this, he always says, you know, talent is everywhere, opportunity is not. Mm. And I think that's something that needs fixing. Then after UK Music, you, you, you go on to be um, the chair of the Betting and Gaming Council. Um, sorry, chief exec of the Betting and Gaming Council, which is obviously a very different um, industry. And, and I realise those skills are transferable. But um, gambling is something that Labour people have a difficult relationship with. And I think of your former boss cancelling the super casino that his predecessor had had announced. Um, have you spoken to Gordon about um, about your new role? I haven't actually, funnily enough, Matt. I think you knew the answer. Is that a rhetorical question? Um, no, I recognise it can be a tough issue. I mean, I remember the days when low party conference would would begin with a trip to the races, by the way. You know, if you think of, you know, huge figures in the past, like Robin Cook and others, huge racing fans in the, in the Labour Party, you know, 22 and a half million people every month have a bet, you know, whether it's on the horses or it's football or, um, or the national lottery or, or playing bingo or whatever. It's actually, I know some people don't like it, um, by the way, I, I don't think it should be compulsory. I just hasten to add. I'm not like, you know, <laughs> you know it's like occasionally people think, you know, well, I just think, you know, it's what, what millions of people like to do with their own money that they've earned and paid their tax on. And yes, you need to raise standards and have great protections. And that's something that we've done actually at BGC with lots of uh, new codes and restrictions and um, all kinds of areas and work very closely with the government on their white paper that's got huge amounts of reform. So so 
it's about having higher standards and protecting the vulnerable. But ultimately, go back to working class communities, you know, it's what they like to do with their money, lots of them. You know, so when I was like, say a kid, you know, I was 18 on a Saturday afternoon, I'd go to the working men's club with my dad and, you know, the lads in the club. And these are people who, not do jobs that I've done. These guys, these are guys who actually bloody have to get off their ass and work for a living. You know, these are people who are labourers or worked in factories or uh, whatever. You know, and on a Saturday afternoon, they liked a few pints. They'd watch the uh, racing. They'd go around to the bookies and put their bets on. They'd put their accumulator on for the football. You know, and then they'd you know they'd play cards for twenty p a go or play snooker and uh, and pool and. You know, that's there's nothing wrong with that, you know. And all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get the industry to work together and to raise its game and to improve its standards, which I think we have. But I'm also trying to give a, a voice as well to those 22 and a half million people who do enjoy a bet, many of whom are, are working class people, or the 110,000 people who work in the industry. You know, these are these are hardworking, decent men and women, again, look after their families, pay their tax. You know, they're working in high street retail and betting shops or they're uh, incredibly well-qualified, well-paid grad, uh, tech grads working in uh, in the online sector. Well, they're in hospitality. We went to a casino this week, hosted an event there, met a lot of the staff. You know, these are people who are waiting tables and serving drinks and or incredibly skilled um, dealers and croupiers and uh you know, the, the people working in the kitchen or cleaning, you know, these are, they should have a voice in all this too. I recognize some people don't like gambling. That's good. There's loads of things I don't like, but, you know, I don't go around telling people they can't do it. I guess it's about for some people, maybe, you know, that you can see the sort of paternalistic elements of, of not just the Labour Party, you know, this cuts across ideologies, but they might feel that the way that some gambling elements are marketed at, at particular communities is, is a bit aggressive. Um, and I, it, it, I mean, everyone has a vice of some level, don't they? Whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or, or, or you know, cake, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> we all do things that perhaps aren't good for us. How? Where do you get the line right between the freedom of the individual to do what they like, as you say, with their with their own money, and protecting effectively vulnerable people? You know, the, the freedom to be protected from um, something yeah, that is would, bad for you. I mean, you've you've taken something that can sometimes be quite complex and made it quite simple. But I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what you do. You, problem gambling rates in this country are 0.3%. Now, I'm not dismissing that. You know, that's, by the way, it's 0.3% of a big number. That's the, you know, uh, the population. Um, but it is still only 0.3%. And some, occasionally when some newspapers talk about the epidemic of gambling, there is, you know, we're all for raising standards and it is exactly about where you draw the line and where you should draw the line is about protecting vulnerable people. And I feel very strongly and particularly about how you protect younger people. Um, you know, we fund uh, all the work that currently happens on research, education and treatment. A lot of that is uh, work that organisations like YGAM do in schools and scout groups and uh, educating young people and teachers so that they can learn about the, you know, the, the dangers of, um, of, of gambling-related harm online and all these things. And that's fantastically important work. And that's just where you draw, where you draw the line. Do you feel like the industry gets a bad rep then, that, that it's always framed in such a negative way? Sometimes it gets a bad rep. Occasionally it's deserved a bad rep. You know, when companies historically have got things wrong, 
uh, where people have been allowed to kind of fall through the cracks of the system. You know, we have a regulator. The regulator is actually a very tough regulator, issues fines when it investigates um, companies or where they've fallen short. And companies in those circumstances have to hold their hand up and, and admit their mistake and learn, fundamentally learn from them. And the rest of the industry does as well. So, um, so yeah, occasionally it's, it's, it's not always been best in class, I think, historically. Um, but I think in recent years, the last three, four years in particular, the industry has come together and really got its act together. Um, and many of the things that you have seen several years ago just couldn't happen now, not only shouldn't happen, couldn't happen now, because what you had was, and it's not the only industry, we talked about music before, you've had vast technological transformation, and inevitably you get a kind of regulatory catch-up. Um, and by regulatory catch-up, that's the regulator itself, um, it's also the government through the white paper, but it's also the industry itself changing its practices, uh, and all of that is a good thing, and I've tried to help them with that. And, and finally, as someone who likes a flutter, Michael, how much would you put on Labour winning the next election? Or what odds would you well, give I, me? Well, I, I told a rather spectacularly ill-judged gag at the Conservative Party conference last week, I thought of you. And, um, <laughs> and you. The, the sort of self-confidence that politicians and former politicians need and have kind of gets occasionally runs away with itself. So I'm doing this joke and there's the uh, gambling minister, Stuart Andrew, at this dinner and there's a whole bunch of Tory MPs and I'm saying, and I was doing the vote of thanks and I, I said, um, and can we also, um, can we also pass on our thanks to the Secretary of State, Lucy Fraser? Because I read this week that she's had a bet and she's had £100 on the Conservatives to win the next election. And I said, you know, so the big cheer from all the Tory MPs on the table. This was the beginning of my downfall, obviously. I thought, oh, I'm on a roll here. And um, and I said, it's great to see the Secretary of State supporting betting. Another mild cheer. And then I said, uh, I said, actually, I don't know whether 100 was the stake or the odds. Then there was a kind of ominous silence. So, so I thought, oh, I'll press my advantage. You know? So I said, I said, I'm not sure it's John Curtis's nap for the day. I said, but uh, I said, uh, let me just give her some advice. I said, if I were her, I, I might have had that bet each way. I said, Skybet, Skybet are known for paying extra places, you know. At which point I was roundly booed by the, by the Conservative MPs. One of them shouted, audience, message. And I thought all those years of, of spinning for Gordon Brown, I've, I've, I've learned nothing about, you know, audience oh, no. and message. I, fe I fell up the first. Well, you've got, to, you've got to retain your sense of humour. Michael, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. And I will, I will see you on the other side. Um, somewhere, maybe at a Forest game. We'll be singing Mull of Kintyre. When Forest players come out, I'm a McCartney obsessive, as you know. And I was think I said, I said this to my wife. I said, you know, when I stand at the city ground and I watch Nottingham Forest come out on the, out into the pitch, and I'm singing Paul McCartney's Mull of Kintyre. I think Paul McCartney, Nottingham Forest, my my two great loves. And she said, well, oh, and obviously your wife and children. I went, oh, and obviously my wife and children. <laughs> Cheers, I'll Mike. see you there, Matt. See you, Mike. As always, uh, just 40 minutes is nothing, is it, really? You start, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God, we've got to go now. But um, I'll get Michael back on for, for, a, for a longer chat because he's just the benefit of, particularly with the gambling, talking about things and thinking about things, not like from both sides just for the sake of it, but just 
someone who can make the positive case for something and someone who understands the, the, the benefits and, 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 and the downsides of, of any given arena, but also just he was such a dominant figure in Labour politics. Um, and I, you know, someone who loves Prime Minister's questions, he was kind of one of the stars of it for a long time. So I just loved asking him about that. Um, but yes, next week begins a new specially curated replay series of some of my favourite um, interviews from the history of the show, which I've not done them in chronological order. Um, there's a sort of rough order to them, but I've gone through and picked some of my favourites and um, they, they skip through the years. So I thought chronologically would be a bit rubbish, really. Um, so I've just picked them at, at random. Well, not at random, but there's a, I just picked them in a rough order that I thought made sense. Um, so you may not have heard any of these because some of them are from 10 years ago. Um, and um, a couple more contemporary ones, but I've, I've tried to go back a bit more and, and pick out ones that, that you might have missed. Um, and it'll be fascinating listening to them, knowing everything that's happened since. Uh, and that's one of the great things. I mean, I just love the interviews anyway, and that's why I make it. But also, because that entire back catalogue is there, it's this amazing record of recent British political history. So listening to these iconic voices, even from four, five, six years ago, and how different politics was then is a real novelty. So I hope you enjoy that. Again, thank you for all your best wishes. Um, I don't know how often I'm going to be um, on social media and stuff in, in the coming weeks and months, but um, obviously I'm keen to be because, um, you know, you want to keep in touch with people, don't you? So uh, anyway, I will see you on the other side. The live shows will return. Uh, I'm on tour next year. And, um, well, leave a five-star written review and the show will be back next week. Cheers. Ta-ra. Thank you.